Welcome to the Connectomics podcast. Here we talk to theorists and practitioners about how notions of embodiment can help us to connect an understanding of ourselves with an understanding of the cultural, technological and ecological worlds of which we are part. I'm your host, Mark Michael James. I'm a cognitive scientist and philosopher at the Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology in beautiful Okinawa, Japan. Please join me to connect with our guest for today in just a moment. Hello and welcome to the Connectomics podcast. So this month I have a couple of apologies to make and a warning. The apologies are... That I'm traveling at the moment, so the sound is not going to be that good uh, just for this introduction. I'll do it as quick as possible. And we were late getting this episode out also because of these travel arrangements. So I'm in Milan at the moment recording this on my iPhone um, using a very beautiful Shure MV88 microphone that I haven't used before. So it's nice to have that opportunity, but I don't know what this is going to sound like. The podcast itself was recorded under the normal conditions, but there was some issues with uh, the mic of our guest. And I haven't heard the final edit, but my editor tells me he got it to sound pretty well. Um, so maybe he can do something with this also, but let's see. Uh, I should say all these issues are my fault entirely and nothing to do with my editor. Uh, the other warning I want to issue is that I was a little bit overworked at the time of doing this. And so when I listen back, I hear myself kind of defaulting to kind of exactly that <laughs> hedgy kind of language and uh, doing it more often than I typically would, I feel. This is something that is exposed by doing a podcast, that you have these tendencies. And so I appreciate hearing it, um, but it's not always the most, uh, you know, exciting thing for a listener to hear. So I'm not going to say precisely what <laughs> I do that's annoying to me, but you might hear it and hear something similar. And if you do, just have the confidence that... This is something I myself am working on. So to give you some context to my inclusion of Rupi in this podcast, Rupi is primarily a sustainability researcher, but he's one very interested in behavioral change and cultural evolution and how those dynamics can be facilitated, designed and oriented towards uh, more sustainable outcomes. I first came across Rupe's work a number of years ago when he wrote for a very nice, uh, it's a kind of proto-academic online uh, journal slash forum 
called The Side View. It's edited by Adam Roberts. And he also co-hosts a podcast by the same name, which Rupe also featured on. And Rupe was writing about uh, design and sustainability in that uh, in an article he wrote for that journal and also on that podcast. And I also wrote for that journal, the first issue of that journal. And uh, we were writing on somewhat similar themes. I was writing about design with respect to behavior change, mostly at an individual level. Rupia was thinking about it more in the context of urban design and so on. So we got in contact then, and I've kind of just kept track of what Rupi has been doing since. And what he does that's interesting and interesting to us here is he intersects these questions around sustainability and behavior change with approaches from body embodied cognitive science and with design. So Rupi is really the first guest we've had on the podcast who, in a sense, is almost the perfect fit for the podcast. Uh, he you know, brings together all these interests into one um, package, if you will. Why I had Rupe on now was he very recently has written an excellent article with Eric Reitfeld, who I hope I'm pro- pronouncing that right, and Rupe's name for that matter, but who many of you will be familiar with. He's um, one of the people based in Amsterdam who's been developing this skilled intentionality framework for a long time, alongside uh, Julian Kiverstein and Jelle Brunenberg and people like that. And Rupe, in conjunction with Eric, uh, wrote this article where they talked about um, strate- what they call strategic design interventions which are basically design interventions at the level of, let's say, urban design um, to begin to move things in the direction of sustainability. And they drew lessons from Eric's work in design. Eric, uh, as well as being an excellent philosopher, also works, I think, alongside his brother in a design firm in architecture and sculptural design firm, I guess, that um, have these uh, kind of installations, large-scale art pieces um, that generally have uh, some, let's say, pro-social, pro-environmental dimension to them. So they were looking at these as case studies and seeing what lessons they could draw from them. Anyway, Rupi is obviously much better to introduce and talk about this, but... Uh, this is just to kind of prefigure this conversation a bit. So in this podcast, we talk about a lot of stuff. We talk about design interventions. We talk about the difference between this and what people talk about when they talk about nudging. We talk about the challenges of behavior change at different scales and the intersection between scales. You know, what we often hear in this discussion around um, sustainability Uh, this tension between individual and collective action um, and what the intersection is between those two. We get into that. We get into questions of managing uncertainty and being able to adapt within that context. And we finish on what is 
I believe, a hopeful note. Uh, so we kind of work towards that. So without further ado, I give you a conversation I had some time, I believe, around February, the middle of February 2022 with Rupe Karunen. Hello, Rupe, and uh, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Nice to be here. Yeah, nice to have you. So, Rupe, you're someone I've known for a while, someone whose work I've known for a while. Um, but I, I've been kind of joking to myself at this point, you know, thinking about introducing you and, you know, thinking about the previous guests we've had on. And for a lot of them, my my kind of, you know, introduction was that these were people with very varied uh, backgrounds and it's always hard to know exactly what to say about them but I think in your case that's particularly true um, it's hard for me to even know what your kind of home discipline is I can't uh, really tell are you a cognitive scientist are you a sustainability researcher and none of that obviously is a slight against you I think um, the podcast itself is interested in meeting people with such backgrounds uh, but maybe you can enlighten me to some of those facts Right. Um, so my background is in, in the social sciences, quite broadly. Um, my degree is in social policy. Um, but throughout my kind of formal education, I uh, came to the conclusion that I really do kind of lack discipline. So my attention is always uh, attracted to these new ideas from different fields. So uh, throughout my studies, I, I got interested in, in philosophy and later on in cognition, cognitive science. So I found that uh, when I was doing my PhD, I was actually mainly working on, I suppose, co embodied cognition, cognitive science, environmental psychology. Hmm. Um, but still, I do, I do find like like my interests are more or less, you know, politically infused at least. Um, but but yeah, since then I've kind of been trying to figure out what is my discipline, and recently I've found myself engaged with the field of cultural evolution, mainly because it, in, it combines all my interests in, in cognitive science, anthropology, and political science. Hmm. So yeah, I think there's one kind of dimension you, you left out of that description a little bit, but it's also part of um, the reason I wanted you on. And you know, par part of the reason I actually think you're in a way an ideal guest for what the ambition of this podcast was in the first place and that's uh i guess it's there in what you said about cultural evolution and your interest there but also having this interest in design right you know the fact that we can shape the world and maybe that we should be shaping the world in some sense right yeah uh, yeah definitely so so it's uh i mean design is something i'm interested in you know on a personal level as a as a fan of the arts and and the uh, industrial design i suppose but but also uh, the whole idea of you know us being agents designing our world around us i think it's it's connected to the whole larger picture of cultural evolution and, and politics as well sure sure um we'll come back to design i think at, at some length um maybe later on in the conversation but uh Maybe a good kind of inroad for the the conversation around your academic work more generally is to start with your with your thesis. Right, I first became aware of you certainly around the time I guess you were writing that thesis. You were also writing so, some some articles for 
popular publications. And actually, we wrote something in the same publication, I think, is where we initially met. And we were actually writing about similar themes in some ways. So there was obviously a resonance there from the start. Um, but your your thesis, uh, your PhD thesis, has a, has a very interesting name, actually. Um, and I'm, I'm intrigued to to know what you're getting at with the name I, I think there's a lot in the name so the the at least the the initial part of the name was steps towards a sustainable mind and I, I think that captures a lot of your interests in general but um you know, what did you mean there by sustainable mind um well first of all yeah that was a, a play on Gregory Bateson's book uh, right. steps to an ecology of mind and I was greatly influenced by by Gregory Bateson and my early PhD phase so I felt like it's an appropriate homage to his work mm. um that said yeah I, I like my my uh, dissertation is a bit of a mixed bowl of ideas i suppose so it has these little articles on on quite different topics and i was trying to figure out you know how to connect it all into one co coherent uh, dissertation so i came up with this idea that each article within kind of represents a little you know, a little incremental step towards how to uh, design basically human environments and, and human minds uh, to uh, conform to a more, you know, sustainable equilibrium. Mm. So in that, there's a sense that, um, uh, obviously, again, I think we're going to get at, at this at length um, later on, but there's a sense that... Um, Psychology questions around psychology and questions around sustainability are are tightly integrated, and maybe in ways that we don't always conceive, or maybe it's not always you know upfront in the conversation. Is that fair? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, so that's kind of what I was trying to do. Is uh, so there there are fields like environmental psychology uh, that have been around for for quite a while. Uh, since at least the 50s and in, in, in the mainstream, I suppose. Uh, but I do feel like much of those kind of lack a more comprehensive, you know, ecological focus on, on, you know, zooming out to the whole picture, trying to connect all the dots between what's happening within the mind, what's happening outside of the mind, how that's affecting the whole picture of how sustainable behaviors and sustainable modes of thought emerge to begin with. Mm. So, so within that, did you, you talked about embodied cognitive science and obviously that's kind of, you know, the nexus of this podcast. Um, did you find from the outset or see already just encountering embodied cognitive science that there was tools therein to uh, maybe help you do some of that work a bit more rigorously or was it simply that ecological psychology had the term ecology attached to it and then it seemed like a good idea? So, yeah, I mean, honestly, I mean, that's that's how it happened um, through coincidence. So uh, in the introduction, I think, of my dissertation, I, I give this uh, kind of anecdote and how my whole dissertation was uh, influenced by these random works inside libraries, you know, just encountering, I suppose, the affordances of books within libraries and how they influenced my thought. But one of those key pieces was uh, Harry Heft's book on, on uh, 
It's called Ecological Psychology in Context. It's a book on, on how ecological psychology emerged. But of all the places you know, possible, I encountered this book in the library of biological and environmental sciences. And it was totally haphazard. I'd, I'd never heard of you know, ecological psychology before, but I saw this book and it, it had you know, two words that were familiar to me at that point, you know, ecology and psychology. And it sounded okay. like, okay, maybe this has something to do with with uh, sustainability well i mean it didn't uh, i suppose like uh, in the first degree it doesn't have much to do right. with that but once you right. once you start reading gibson for example even in in, in um, gibson's the ecological approach to visual perception he does have this paragraph where he uh, he starts getting into these sustainability concerns that and, and it basically he's saying that you know given uh, given that we only have one world and, and we're constantly shaping it. We should be quite mindful about how we're doing that. Right. So that's when, when all the kind of puzzles started, you know, falling other pieces started falling together. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. That is interesting because a friend and I were ch chatting yesterday. Actually, no, it was in the course. So we're giving a course here on intro to embodied cognitive science. And uh, this conversation came up around the kind of, uh, I guess the, there, there, where where the notion of ecological originated for uh, Gibson, or maybe it was there even before Gibson. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. Um, but that it, you know, the the word itself doesn't necessarily share this kind of a set of concerns, um, or the discipline doesn't. But as you say, it can be framed in a way that maybe it, it is relevant to these concerns. Um, and my take on and maybe you can respond to this, but my take was simply that um, ecological psychologists were concerned with relations and that that's in some way the study of e ecology writ large, right? It's a science of relation. Does that seem fair? Was that, was that uh, from what you know of ecological psychology, was that, that it's kind of a commitment to that word? Um. Yeah, so it's it's all about organism environment or, or organism environment relations, and that's what ecology is about as well. So, right. Yeah, yeah. So nothing more complicated than that. That's good. <laughs> no, no, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, something you you've I've I've read that you've written previously, um, um, which I think you know really gets us into the the meat of your concerns um, was, uh, so I can't remember quite where this came from, so I have it here in my notes, but maybe you can recall where it came from. You write that to enlighten the question of how collective adoption of sustainable behaviours can be leveraged, um, particularly by changing the affordances in the material environment. So I, I think that's a statement of what's really at, at the heart of your work, right? To enlighten this question of how we can collectively uh, adapt to these sustainable ways of being. And you, you see as affordance theory as somehow central to that. Um, <clears throat> maybe we can start there. So um, again, maybe going back to you walking around the library and, you know, having these kinds of initial intuitions and so on. What, what was it about affordance theory as such that... Uh, besides just seeing the name ecology, right? But what was it about the theory itself that kind of drew, drew you in further? Right. Um, 
So, yeah, I suppose I should have also mentioned in, in the beginning that I also have a background in urban studies and, and urban design. Mm. And, and the idea of affordances has kind of penetrated that field. But, but um, I suppose my, my big kind of concern or, or also interest of research is that, uh, well, first of all, uh, cities are growing around the world. People are moving into cities. Uh, second, cities are, you know, the hubs for consumption and, and also production. So currently, the, the large majority of, of um, emissions and pollutants are coming from cities. And meanwhile, we are actively designing cities and fitting them with, with certain kinds of affordances. And this has a huge impact on how humans behave, which then has a huge impact on, on you know, ecological systems and the climate more generally. So when i you know when when i first saw this idea of affordances it just you know fit into that general picture of you know urban design mm. and what kind of affordances our urban environments uh, provide us with and so on yeah so yeah that that, that. so so gibson and the theory of affordances and ecological psychology in general right has this kind of um Maybe even we might call it a bias towards the environment. Uh, it it kind of maybe could be criticized of having, now I'm sure there might be ecological psychologists listening to this who might disagree, but um, something of a limited account of the organism, right? They even use that language all the time. It's rare they speak about persons or um, even animals. It's generally organism. Um, was there... So I guess my what I'm saying is from a design stand, standpoint, it makes a lot of sense, right? People who are focused on the uh, reconfiguration and modulation of, say, environmental constraints. Um, <clears throat> do you find that ecological psychology also has, um, say, adequate resources, conceptual resources, or do you do you find yourself going somewhere else when you're thinking also about about the agents, right? Whether that be the agents who are involved in the designing or that be the agents who are um, making use of these affordances. Um, yeah, so, well, my experience from, from stumbling into ecological psychology from the outside is, and, and also embodied cognition is, there, there seems to be a lot of encampments. I think people are kind of talking past each other and it's... Um, it's a bit of a hard space to navigate as as a kind of semi outsider. I feel mm. so. Maybe even the whole general field of cognitive science. I feel like there's a lot of uh, a lot of you know people sticking to very specific ideas, and and uh, I think the kind of general picture is suffering from that. So I did, even though I'm I'm tremendously influenced by ecological psychology. I kind of try not to subscribe you know too rigidly to some of some of the key tenets and and as a i suppose as, as someone working in the field of sustainability science i mean we're mainly looking for mm. concepts and ideas that you know are as practically influential as possible mm. and i think affordance is one of those ideas but the problems start you know racking up when people start to define you know affordances very specifically and and um, i suppose like intolerantly so 
one one example is <laughs> one example is the, uh, the Donald Norman's book, The Design of Everyday Things. I, I found that tremendously useful. I, I know many designers have found it tremendously useful, but I think still many ecological psychologists feel quite, you know, uh, quite a bit of, I don't know, is disdain the right word, maybe a bit too, too extreme, but they're very critical of how Norman defines affordances in this book and so on. And maybe, you know, maybe for for good reason, but I still feel like uh, if we approach these things, solutions first, then I think these, you know, little differences and definitions are kind of secondary concerns. Yeah. I think John, John Dewey uh, once said that the greatest feuds in academia occur, you know, between neighbors. And I think that's true by and large. Yeah, that's absolutely entirely true. I mean, having existed in, you know, units where, people are coming from different backgrounds and in a way not even willing to find the common ground to you know work towards maybe larger concerns um and it's generally you know these small issues that people are almost willing to die for right they they put their flag in the ground and then that's it um and i guess some of it's understandable if we you know if we take a, a step back and think about the psychology that's operative there and so on right there's momentum and identity and uh, history and habits and all sorts of stuff that's kind of feeding into this but the the value i guess in maybe having a a larger concern right something like sustainability is you're willing to set a lot of that aside um and you know that gives you some distance from it maybe yeah yeah that is true i mean to be clear, I, I, you know, do respect that people stick to their ideas and principles and try to take, you know, specific ideas to the kind of extreme. I think that's important for the progress of sciences to take these, uh, mm. these, you know, bits of bits of ideas and take them to their logical conclusions and see how far, you know, how far they go in explaining human behavior. Uh, but then, you know, in these uh, applied cases of of research and. And these, you know, political uh, agendas. I suppose those little um, those little debates have less, you know, practical importance. Yeah, there, I mean, there's an interesting conversation there about the value of, you know, the intersection of theory and practice. Um, you know, in my experience, some of the some of the most um, pragmatic of folks right are people like uh, say pragmatic applicants of uh of theory are are people who um you know so someone like a therapist right who's encountering individuality and particularity every day and finding that you know just because this theory um is well verified in certain instances or you know has a lot of supporters or whatever actually this person who's now present in front of me <laughs> is not fitting the theory, right? So it's like, maybe I need a few more theories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I just, yeah, like to add on that, that I'm not very optimistic of there ever being a kind of general theory of cognition. I mean, we're adaptive systems. There is no way to define every bit of human behavior in terms of a, in terms of a formal theory without that theory growing so large that it's absolutely useless at some point. So mm-hmm. I, I find it very useful. Like in, in my dissertation, I used uh, various theories like ecological psychology, ecological 
rationality. I know they're all kind of incompatible, but they all explain this little you know piece of the puzzle in their own way, and they're all useful in in, in their own ways in these little domains. Um, so I, I do subscribe to this very pluralist, I suppose. I was going to say you you seem to have a kind of meta theoretical stance operative there in the background, right? Where you you can apply this pluralism. Um, yeah, I tend to be similarly inclined. You know, look for the compatibilities, understand the boundary conditions, um, understand what something is good for, and uh, you know, they're they're all epistemic frames in a way. That's not to say that you know something can't be a bad frame or just, you know, some sort of a relativistic, um, you know, uh, kind of production of your, reproduction of your own biases and so on. Um, we're still interested in science, uh, but as you say, right, the the kind of target of our interests, cognition, mind and so on, is, is just so complex. Anything like a, a complete theory, as you say, would be so complex itself that it's not going to be that useful, right? So you're always kind of biting off chunks relevant to your your concerns. Yeah, yeah. There's this cliche of a, of a saying in, in um, formal modeling by George Box that, you know, all models are wrong, but some are useful. Right. And I, I think the same, you know, applies to theories because theories at their core, they are models of the world basically. So all, all theories are wrong, you know, some are useful in some contexts and we should yeah. try to find the context in which certain theories are, you know, useful and have predictive and explanatory power. Right. And understand the, you know, the, the kind of dynamics by which some of them are going wrong and be willing to let, set them aside and, you know, a, adopt something that seems to work better because, you know, the situation demands it, right? It's, it's not like we just have kind of carte blanche to theorize. We're, we we are engaged with a world that um, is con- constantly pushing back. Um, <clears throat> you have so from there. I know you've also, and uh, I guess this speaks to that kind of pluralism you're talking about. You've also worked with um, more kind of predictive processing, Andy Clark style. Uh, frameworks um, and I, I I don't know if I've um, uh, kind of constructed that right but the skilled intentionality uh, folks in Amsterdam um, also seem to kind of aim for this kind of compatibilist um, stance where they use the kind of free energy principle alongside some of the inactive and ecological uh, ideas. Um, and you found yourself um, working with them at some point. Uh, was I'm wondering if that was kind of conscious with respect to the fact that they were also showing this kind of pluralistic interest and you thought you would be well-suited there, or was it more the specific ideas themselves that were of interest to you? Right, so... I think, um, yeah, what drew me to Amsterdam was the combination of, I suppose, theory and, and practice. So, so these people people had been working on, I knew they had been working on ecological psychology for a long time because I was, I mean, some of my largest influences in the field of ecological psychology was from these people, mm-hmm. such as Eric, Eric Riefeld. But I also knew that they're, you know, working with practical projects. So that, that was an interesting 
thing to find that there are other people who are you know trying to apply ecological psychology to, to real world issues mm. um, regarding predictive processing i i had my kind of phase with that in in 2018 i think and i found it you know totally inspiring and and uh, definitely one of those large aha moments you know where you kind of feel like things start uh, unraveling you know you start understanding very uh, deeply you know how the mind you know might work in a more general framework but later on i kind of did struggle with finding practical applications uh, regarding predictive processing so i'm kind of you know i've been stuck with that ever since right right um that that this kind of conversation i guess brings me to um maybe why i kind of uh, reached out and tried to set up this conversation here today right so you recently um wrote a paper with eric um am i right so the title was practical lessons for creating affordance based interventions for sustainable behavior change um, so for people who, who are, are, are listening and maybe don't know, uh, Eric Reitfeld is a philosopher um, working at the University of Amsterdam. He was at least, I don't know if he's still there. Uh, but he's also part of a collective, art collective, design collective called RAF. I believe he's involved with that with his brother is the main, is that correct? Yes, that is correct. They they co-founded RAF. That's R A A A F, right? Which stands for Art Affordances and Architecture, I think. Yes. And what's the F? Um, from affordances, I think I'm not totally sure. <laughs> okay, so uh, the R is Rightfeld, I, I believe. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, Eric has always kind of stood out as this. Uh, very unique individual in the space of cognitive science uh, um, because he's always been aligned with with this work. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I know the first time I encountered Eric's work, uh, he was presenting um, on a project that they had done called The End of Sitting. And it was a project where they had, uh, I guess, taken an environment and taken the basic contention or suggestion that was maybe around at the time that sitting was as problematic for your health as smoking was um, if we could get people standing up a bit more often uh, throughout the day that would, wouldn't be a bad thing and uh, they basically redesigned this whole space to uh, encourage different forms of movement if I'm right so it's not just you're walking or it's not just you're leaning or you know uh, I don't know what other kinds of postures one might take, but you could lie down, you could do all sorts of stuff in this space, um, but it was a workspace. Anyway, so can you maybe tell us, um, you're probably a better positioned than I am to do do so, but yeah, can you tell us about this work? Um, and uh, obviously it's aimed at sustainable behavior change, but uh, why, was, why, why in particular was... Um, Eric, someone that was good to work with in this instance. Um, yeah, I think the main advantage is that they do have, you know, I think 15 years of, of experience with these you know, very practical design projects or, or, or experimental architecture, experimental art projects. Mm. And um, 
practice. And I, I do feel like, you know, the most interesting researchers often are those who have, you know, one foot in the practical space. So I think that's mainly because if you're only doing theory, you don't really put the theory into practice. And I think practice is the kind of sieve that uh, separates, you know, good theories from bad theories. I mean, if you have a cognitive theory and you can use it for something useful, that's, a, I mean, it's a signal itself that something interesting is going on within the theory. You can use mm -hmm. it to influence, you know, I don't know, people's behavior or, or thinking or, or predict how people behave and so on. Um, but yeah, these these projects by Raf, uh, they are they are just I think very amazing and and, and beautiful and interesting. So I've I've had the pleasure actually myself of visiting their workshop in in Amsterdam and and experiencing it of sitting myself or at least one version of it. And yeah, it's uh, it definitely makes you think, you know, how how the world could you know, look different. And I feel like it's it's very inspiring as a researcher in the sustainability field mm. to work with people who are in actually, you know, practically envisaging uh, alternative or different futures. Yeah, can you maybe so in this paper you set out this I guess program for what you call strategic design interventions. Um, and you use their work as case studies of sorts to inform certain intuitions about how maybe one can go about doing this strategic design intervention. Um, can you maybe talk about some of the other projects first for us? And then maybe we'll get into some of the lessons that you might have learned um, from working with them. Um, yeah, sure. So so in this um, in this paper, I think we have maybe four or five case studies of, of RAF's projects. And it's, it's a varied bunch of, of cases, really. Uh, some of, to me, the uh, perhaps most interest, interesting one is the one called Trusted Strangers. Mm. Uh, so in Trusted Strangers, the idea is to have, I think, 24 barges uh, in the sea, you know, in Amsterdam, ex extending the city to the sea itself and have these uh, barges with basically affordances for different subcultures. And the idea is, if, if I remember correctly, uh, to have, you know, specific, you know, barges for specific subcultures, such as you know, skateboarding or, or bird watching or, or whatever, but also have these uh, barges that connect the interests of various groups. So say, you know, everyone loves a bonfire. Uh, so many different subcultures are connected, say, you know, with the activity of football. So you can, you can have these, you know, affordances for specific people and, and, and affordances mm -hmm. for everyone. And I think it's a very kind of noble idea of creating these environments where different subcultures, you know, can do what they wish, but also interact with each other. And um, yeah, I mean, I mean, Ruff has done all kinds of stuff. You can visit their website at raaf.nl for their portfolio. But they've also worked with uh, culture, cultural heritage, so historical sites, and and done some very creative creative things with those as well. So it's definitely mm. worth a look. Yeah, one of the ones that stuck out to me and that has just kind of stayed in my imagination a bit is... Um, <clears throat> Actually, just as I say that, a few of them are rushing back in. But one in particular was where they um, 
empty the space. I believe it was in a, a, a kind of a neglected uh, building somewhere in Amsterdam and then uh, brought in the models of all the actual buildings that are sitting empty in Amsterdam and just collected them all in one space and modeled these buildings all in this space. And I, I'm not quite sure, but there must have been somewhere in the region of three or 4,000 small models all collected in this space. Um, and I, I, it was a comment on, I guess, just the the extent to which space is going to waste in the city of Amsterdam. Yeah, yeah. So that's yeah, that's that's one of the cases we also have in our paper, and it's called vacant NL, vacant Netherlands. And mm -hmm. Yeah, they actually built these blue foam models of all, I think, all the vacant or most of the vacant uh, public buildings and in the Netherlands. And it's a you know a great way to visualize in a, in one small space how much you know real world space is wasted, mm -hmm. and and you know it just evokes the. Um, amount of lost opportunity, I suppose, in utilizing these spaces for good. I think, you know, especially now with, with COVID and, and people being locked down and we, we noticed that, you know, if we can't cram ourselves to the small spaces we have, we want to utilize all the abundancy of space that we have around us that's totally unused. Right, right. Yeah, I, I'm here in Japan and there's lessons to be learned from the Japanese in that regard. You know, they... In fact, it, it quite um, you know the 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 aesthetic of smallness and using space well is something that's kind of built into the Japanese uh, culture at this point. And tiny houses have been around here for a long time, right? There's something about um, proper use of space that is kind of valorized and celebrated, and maybe that's that's a good idea in general. Uh, but so these projects in the context of what you were writing about and your interest in them um, beyond a mere aesthetic interest was uh, that they they have some lessons for us about the ability to uh, mobilize change. So you talk about setting social change in motion. Right? That's in some way the objective of strategic, strategic design intervention. Um, <clears throat> maybe you could talk a little bit about um, yeah, so so maybe from either of those examples or another one or something else that comes to mind about how these projects um, have enabled that, right? So these design or art projects have kind of facilitated the ambition of setting social change in motion. Um, right, so yeah, these, I suppose, uh, ROF's projects are, are usually... Uh, closer to arts exhibitions, so I think one one of their big leverage points is you know influencing uh, the public and public decision makers into basically imagining alternative futures. Mm -hmm. So I think they they have had some some very real influence. Now I'm not I'm not a member of of rap myself, so I'm kind of uh, hesitant of, of putting words into their mouths. But I feel like they are involved in in many you know policy projects and they they keep on getting invited by these uh high level policymakers to provide input into ongoing policy decisions so i feel like it's a very interesting case of you know arts having actual influence on how policy is designed i think one of the big problems is that you know in in the current political environment it's very hard uh to break the mold basically i think we're stuck in so many different path dependencies that any kind of 
divergence from the status quo is a huge risk monetarily. So basically, mm-hmm. whenever whenever some you know public uh, design or urban design project gets approved, it has to go through this you know phase of cost benefit analysis and and you know plans. And there's basically very little risk appetite in designing cities to be more interesting and more imaginative and more kind of improvised and when you think about it that those are the kind of aspects that make a city you know the place to live in the interesting that's why cities are interesting that's the whole point of cities basically is to as uh, urban theorists like jane jacobs have said the whole idea of you know why cities are economic hubs for example is that they spark these spontaneous interactions so mm. i think you know having having arts close to policy is definitely a good idea in kind of breaking these equilibrium that that or equilibria that emerge mm. it's a real you know it's a real it's a real design constraint right the the fact that um people are risk averse uh, and ever more so and right this is obviously uh, connected to i guess political situations where People have short short terms in office, and you know election cycles and all of that is is relevant to what people are willing to take on. Um, but within those constraints, um, do you see opportunities? Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's so much untapped opportunities. So basically, I'm. I think one of the my longer research interests has been in, in studying how urban design can have radical, uh, radical effects on, on human behavior. And we keep seeing, you know, time and time again, if you study the history of cities that, you know, the design implementations and practices that we have can have radical influence on how societies uh, turn out. So mm-hmm. one, for example, one of my favorite case studies are, are the, um, emergence of bicycling cultures in, in uh, Copenhagen and Amsterdam, for example. And when you look back, it's, uh, it's a totally, you know, intentional policy choice within, you know, the strict boundaries of, of what's allowed in urban design. But the simple choice of basically substituting um, roads for cars uh, for bicycling infrastructure has huge effect on how people uh, start, you know, bicycling, and this has huge effect on on what emerges, you know, by the streets because uh, consumers are are closer to services, basically, and everything mm. is more accessible and lively. And also, you know, how how safe the city is perceived when you don't have these two to four ton uh, iron <laughs> carriages mm. running around. Mm. Uh, so I, I feel like it's uh, it's totally an untapped resource. You know, I mean, these kind of radical redesign of cities and meanwhile also i mean i'm I'm speaking about how you can uh you can design cities intentionally for the better but i feel like we're also designing cities intentionally uh, for the worse currently you know by most most uh major cities currently are already unsustainable and, and and consuming unsustainably and meanwhile we're just filling them with more and more malls and these kind of hyper consumption centers mm-hmm. so we need to be more mindful about what we're you know doing with cities how we're designing the affordances within cities right right uh, uh yeah i like the the example you shared because it, it, it's almost the cities you mentioned we 
we identify those cities with those practices, you know, Amsterdam and somewhere like Copenhagen. And to think that that emerged from some policy decision sometime not too long ago, um, and it's not just, you know, built into the fabric of the city all along is is quite inspiring. But one of the, one, one of the kind of said details in the question I was asking you um, a minute ago, I think, is so if, if we acknowledge the fact that, um, say, municipal governments and uh, people who make policy for cities are so risk averse, um, are we forced into, say, different strategies and how we approach those 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 issues, right? How how we get through our ideas around how the city should should function or could function more sustainably? Yeah, definitely. So there's uh, been a bit of talk and 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 uh, literature on governance on on the concept that's called cover your ass. Basically, uh, what it means is that uh, mm-hmm. most policymakers currently are kind of forced to choose. Uh, decisions that are basically, in their opinion, in their own opinion, suboptimal, mm-hmm. mainly because they have to ensure that they don't breach certain uh, policy boundaries, such as increased expenses that endanger, you know, their succession in 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 the next term. So we're kind of stuck in this situation where people are judged in the very short term for the decisions, and and if you know, so for example, in in my home city in Helsinki. We recently we put a lot of effort into designing bicycle infrastructure, and of course, you know, instantly people don't really get this, you know, new infrastructure, and they don't really adopt new behaviors. It takes some time to get used to new habits, mm-hmm. and of course, the people who who are responsible for for making those, I mean, they're not even very expensive decisions, but still, you know, mm-hmm. uh, public expenses, they're they're getting hammered for you know basically doing the right thing. So we are, you know, stuck in a very constrained space uh, as regard to how cities can be designed, which is very, which is a very uh, unique position, I think, in the history of cities. Usually, they have evolved mostly from the bottom up. You know, merchants have been uh, had the freedom to design the uh, space, you know, next to their workshops, and and you know, roads have emerged where they've been needed, and so on. So ever since the kind of I suppose the modernist turn around, I suppose, 1950s, we've been stuck in this top-down design of urban environments, and that's putting a lot of constraints. Mm. And uh, honestly, I mean, I don't think there's a magic bullet that mm. solves that. I mean, we're we're kind of stuck, I feel. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting. I think... Uh, it's and it's a real challenge, obviously. The so one one thing that's coming to mind, and this might kind of get us into a, a larger conversation here as well, is so in the in the case you just described, right? The affordances are all of a sudden present, um, but the up, uptake of the affordances uh, isn't um, maybe what one had hoped or expected, or certainly what from what you're saying what. Poly, policymakers anticipated, um, <clears throat> and I think that so. So for me, um, we can think about design in a lot of different ways, right? We can think about design from a formal standpoint as this formal practice, the kind of thing we do as you know 
formerly employed designers, whether it's urban design or architecture or fashion or whatever it is. Um, but there's also this more kind of diffuse notion of design um, and what it means to design for change at multiple scales, right? So how my designs kind of feed into social design and, and what the reciprocity is there. And I think this gets us to a kind of larger conversation, which is um, the relationship between individual and collective change or, you know, something we might call social change or individual change. And it's, it's a kind of tired conversation in a lot of ways, right? Um, the either end of the political spectrum seems to be occupied by commitments to certain notions of uh, what it means to change in the first place, right? Is it, is it just individuals or is it all just structural or whatever? Um, and then the conversation around sustainability often um, for sometimes, you know, I don't want to say nefarious, but say uh, economic purposes is is kind of broken into this um, suggestion that, uh, well, this change needs to happen at an individual level. Um, so therefore, that means, you know, individuals changing habits and so on. And then there's also some recognition of the kind of futility of that, right? <laughs> you know, if I turn off my lights more often, um, it's not it's not going to really add to the the, the uh, future sustainability of the planet. Um, and I, I just wonder if you have any thoughts in this space in general, and then maybe we can, you know, get into details around it. Um, but I do, I do think there's, there's something productive there that, you know, hasn't historically been part of the conversation, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what you just described is uh, basically the tension between individualist and kind of systemic change proponent and uh, so to me it's like it, it might just be one of the most <laughs> misguided debates in, in the whole mm. field of sustainability science so you have people you know saying you know it's a uh, change is an individual responsibility and others say that it's a uh, you know systemic responsibility mm. i think very few i mean many are still but but still relatively few are are kind of interested in studying the whole system you know how how do these basically yeah. uh, to me the big question is how do these sustainable you know systems level uh, phenomena emerge and how how mm. they you know in turn shape individual behaviors within and how the whole you know i think often the whole kind of meso level of the picture is also left out so people speak right. of individuals and systems but you know what about social networks social groups, you know, uh, clusters of people. I mean, that's for most of human evolution, that's been, you know, the main unit of interest, I suppose, the group, uh, small group of humans, and we're kind of leaving that out from this discussion. Right. And I think uh, much of the research recently on, on so social change is illustrating how exactly this, you know, level of uh, small groups are like, Know, clusters of activists, for example, how they can can have radical impact on how societies turn out in the long term. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly what I'm kind of getting at here, right? The the sense is that um, any change, uh, whether it's so so whether there's something that's say enforced from the top down, like some new policy or whatever, COVID lockdowns, right? All these new regulations. Um, 
the precise character the change takes, you know, what it results in, how it manifests um, over time, is always filtered through these clusters or these dyads or these relationships. Um, you know, what you called the, the mesoscale. Uh, and I do think that's a good uh, point of focus for thinking about um, maybe a new way forward, right? So we, we do away with this stale conversation about individualists and systemic as if there were something that were totally separate from each other from the start. Um, and, and you know, focusing on that mesoscale, I, I, I do think that's where uh, embodiment and embodied cognitive science kind of comes back into the picture, right? So I know recently... Um, so there's a group in Denmark, I forget the university they're at, but the group's led by Stephen Cowley, um, Stephen Cowley, David Secchi, uh, Rasmus Garen Anderson, and they talk about organizational cognition and, and really the center of their, you know, their interests is this mesoscale, right? Acknowledging that this is really the locus of change. Um, <clears throat> so if that's a leverage point, uh, you know, and you're thinking about systemic design interventions uh, like you talked about in your paper, um, what would kind of leveraging both that understanding and then also the kind of design approach, what might might that look like? Yeah, that is a good question. It's, it's I mean, whatever we're going to basically work on at the mesoscale is going to be difficult, mainly because we've had this huge and long wave of of individualism that's resulted in you know people are, are calling out the loneliness epidemic in most western mm -hmm. cities right now so we've kind of <laughs> i suppose we've kind of done away with uh, with you know what might just be the most you know natural state of human being which is being in a in a tightly knit cluster of of uh, trustworthy humans so we've kind of lost that and we, we need to rebuild it. And I think, you know, urban environments have much to do in promoting that. And it has to, has to do with uh, doing away with this, you know, top-down design of cities and just putting these basically shopping centers and malls everywhere because those do absolutely nothing to, to promote these mm -hmm. uh, small-scale interactions. So we need more of, of these, you know, grassroots uh, organizations such as, um, I don't know, like community gardening and and hobbies and you know public mm. spaces where public forums where people can actually interact and build trust uh, trustworthy relations with each other right so that's i suppose that's that's one of the that's why why the whole uh case study of uh, raf's project trusted strangers is, is so interesting to me is because it's basically trying to do exactly that mm. so so again there are ways of design uh, to influence developments such as this, but it's yeah, it's 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 not going to be easy. I mean, the inertia of of what's been happening for so long, you know, in, with individualism is is just so strong. Right, right. Yeah, it was funny, right? Because during the <laughs> during the pandemic, I think there was an acknowledgement almost straight away when people were. Um, you know, forced back into small clusters and looking after their neighbors and um, being a bit more sensitive to who's around them and what their needs are. Uh, you know, some acknowledgement of it feeling quite homely and welcome and the sense of community been uh, valued. And then, you know, the hope and prayers that 
um, post-pandemic, post-lockdown, we at least retain some sense of that. Um, and given the opportunity, then um, that, you know, we can get back there a bit more quickly. But it's hard to know, right? It's hard. The, as you say, the pat dependencies of the culture that we find ourselves in is are so strong that, um, you know, like an old habit or an old addiction, you just fall into it when when the conditions are right. And yeah, it's hard to it's hard to envision those kinds of um, more convivial community kind of situations arising spontaneously under the kind of constraints of, you know, late Western capitalism. Yeah, <clears throat> right. That said, you know, we, we do have new avenues for interaction, such as what we're doing right now, talking to each other from different corners of the world, right. online environments and so on. Uh, but as we, as I suppose most have noticed during during COVID, it's definitely not the optimal way to, to organize, uh, you know, get-togethers and, and conversations. So it, it does seem like people actually yearn for that, you know, embodied presence. Yeah. So whereas yeah, I, I do think it's, uh, for for example, sustainability transitions, it's it's going to be very useful and absolutely a key part of the puzzle to you know build communities, international communities online and share knowledge and exchange ideas and organize you know activism and so on. But that said, it, I don't I don't feel like it's going to replace you know embodied presence in, in no major way. Yeah, this is an inter- interesting conversation because the focus of my own research at this point is um, so some acknowledgement, right, that uh, most of our models in cognitive science up to this point have been um, face-to-face, in-person interaction when we're thinking about embodied sociality. Uh, so participatory sense-making and so on, right, the whole kind of an active project there was really um, a story about interbodily resonance when you're face-to-face with somebody and how that's participant in the construction of meaning and so on. Um, but very quickly under the context of COVID, it became apparent, right, that we were still maintaining some sort of social production and reproduction. Um, but now in the absence of face-to-face interaction, almost entirely in some instances, uh, so the models themselves are somehow limited, right? There's something about how embodied cognitive sciences approach these kinds of kinds of understandings that um, hasn't hasn't been adequate to the actual space that it's trying to theorize. Uh, so one, one focus we're looking at is um, what we call embodied, digital embodied sociality. But as part of that, you know, my own interest is thinking about, um, you know, precisely how can we make these spaces more kind of convivial or welcoming um, and not just through technology, right, but through our relationship to technology, through the spaces in which the technology functions, through context, um, you know, through through all the design constraints you could bring to bear on an interaction um, with the hope that precisely as you say, right, if online communities can kind of gather together, uh, there is the kind of numbers and um and consequently maybe something like the kind of critical mass that is needed to push through certain policies right at a more global scale yeah yeah that is definitely one of one of the key roles that i see of online communities in the future is to reach these critical thresholds of people you know signaling that they want change and they're willing to drive that change and so on 
Um, that said, you know, with all all the all these digital infrastructures, I am very concerned of of you know a corporate takeover and and you know maybe just you know if we're seeing this, like I'm not optimistic at all about all this hype, you know, and the metaverse and so on. Right. Mainly because I feel like it's, I mean, the interest of, of companies is to advertise uh, with these uh, platforms. So, and that's just going to bring us back to square one, basically, and having these uh, spaces that are designed for overconsumption. Yeah, it's the real threat, right? It's just always there lur lur lurking. Just any good idea, just, you know, wiped off. Um there are instances, I think, uh, so maybe you know Audrey Tang. Do you know Audrey Tang in Taiwan? Uh, unfortunately, I don't. For our listeners and for yourself, someone definitely worth uh, inquiring into. She, um, I, don't, I don't know precise details of some of the projects she's doing, but she, she's been hired as the, uh, I think she's called the digital minister now in Taiwan. Um <clears throat> She was uh, initially a hacker, um, somebody who got involved in some sort of student pro protest there. Um, but really, she was kind of employed there to, I guess, turn the tools of her, um, the tools she was, you know, equipped with and equipped to develop into into processes that could be worked into government. Um, and by all accounts, I mean, they've made the government much more transparent, much more effective, Um they helped uh, limit the kind of spread of disinformation throughout COVID. Um, all sorts of really innovative ways of doing things. And I think precisely because they had um, the support of state interest that wasn't immediately tying them to like capital, right? So they were incentivized differently. Um, but it is promising, right? The, the, the idea that the same tools and, uh, you know, systems that um, in, a, in a lot of countries are part of the kind of, you know, eradication of democratic process and spread of disinformation and, and uh, the kind of, I suppose, pollution of the sense-making sphere or, you know, knowledge uh, production sphere um, can also be kind of inverted, right, and, and put to the use that we maybe had envisioned for them at the outset or still do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely sounds like something worth looking into in more detail. Yeah, Audrey Tang is her name for anyone who's interested. Um, <clears throat> so one thing I'm curious about, and you write in your paper, and it's quite explicit, and I thought it was quite good. Um, so most people, or at least some people, have heard of the kind of nudge theory and the idea that, um, you know, groups around the world have governments around the world have set up uh, so in the UK they had the behavioral insights team and um, in the US and I know in some of the Nordic countries too they've been uh, employing behavioral scientists to um, nudge people in the direction of behaviors that are ostensibly in in their in their favor and there's been a lot of pushback against this um, for you know reasons of paternalism and state intervention and you know, I'm free to choose whatever I want. And a lot of critique of it has been like, um, you know, not that effective. And frankly, uh, you know, optimizing for metrics that people aren't that concerned with ultimately. And um, 
in your paper with Eric, you kind of, first of all, um, say you're not doing or not talking about nudge theory as such, but um, you're almost superseding it, right? Saying, saying we want to introduce kind of landscapes of affordances that offer radically new behaviors um, and, um, you know, design constraints for unwished for behaviors. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, what your kind of ethical stance is around that. Have you encountered, say, pushback to it or, yeah, anything at all in that area? Um, yeah, so so regarding nudge theory, I mean, there's they have this whole idea of, you know, uh, paternalistic liberalism, which they claim isn't an oxymoron, but I think that it is. Um, and they have this idea that, you know, with these little nudges or little changes in, in our physical environments or what they call choice architectures, uh, that with these little changes, we can drive uh, predictable behavior. And truly, there isn't much evidence that this works. You know, little, little minor changes basically have very little effect on behavior, and usually it's not very predictable. And um, I think they're kind of trapped in this idea that, you know, from the top down, we have to or, or basically, I mean, the first assumption is that the government knows better, you know, maybe in, in some instances it does, but in, in many it doesn't. Um, and the second is that that humans have, you know, predictable biases that we can change by, by nudging them. Now, some nudges definitely work, and I am optimistic, you know, towards all the what are called default nudges, but that's just I mean, that's just basic service design that's been around since the dawn of, you know, social marketing, I suppose. Um, designing, you know, mm. making the wish for behaviors default. Yeah, that's part of the issue with this thing is the, is the idea that it hasn't been there in some fashion all along, right? Yeah, yeah. And then there are others that are just, you know, basically have been shown time and time and again <clears throat> to be not very effective. So I'm kind of... I'm a bit flabbergasted by all this attention and, and government policy towards society of nudging because mm -hmm. it's, I mean, what works isn't new and, and you know, what's new doesn't work, I suppose, putting it crudely. Mm -hmm. um, that said, you know, if, if by nudge you mean changing the environment uh, for behavior change, I mean, that's a, it's just the basic fact of how, how humans behave, I suppose. So that's going to happen. And, and if you call it nudging and, and saying that it doesn't, you know, reduce uh, certain liberties, and it's just not true, because whatever way in which you change a, uh, an environment, a behavior setting is going to have effect on what's, you know, possible to do in that environment. So I think nudge theory really isn't being honest about that. And I think we have to be honest about it. Uh, and, and we have to think about, because they, they have this um, whole idea that they don't want to reduce human freedoms. Mm -hmm. And I think what they're missing is that by reading, redesigning environments, we can actually create new freedoms. We can create you know, new behaviors, new cultures, and so on. Mm -hmm. So they're missing the whole positive aspect of, of how design affects humans and so on. Right. And also that uh, that <laughs> the very basic fact that we need constraints. I mean, any self-organizing system with meaningfully 
uh, informative behavior, I suppose, uh, needs constraints. So if you have a game of chess or a chessboard with all the pieces, but no constraints, you don't have chess, you just have a mess. Mm. So that's what I suppose what I mean with creating constraints is that we need to create the constraints that give life to a vibrant, sustainable community. Right, right. Yeah, my, my, my own feeling, you know, with tracing the emergence of this, right, because it, it kind of took off in a way that it <laughs> kind of didn't deserve to, right? It landed at some point and it fit the zeitgeist, I think. Um, <clears throat> it, it was very much allied with um, behavioral economics. And um, I, I think it, it kind of latched on to that kind of, you know, rising boat at the time uh, and kind of came out as a a way to um i guess invest say governmental policy and so on with certain insights from that domain or, or discipline but um <clears throat> i also think it's uh it it belies a certain say understanding of what it is to be a person in the first place right and the fact that it is um got the traction it did uh also belies how how people and say planners and and uh i, I guess the the general kind of way that you know construct people were constructing people before that right and what was involved in decision making it's like well up to this point were we perfectly free to make any decision we wanted and now only now you're coming in and kind of nudging me in a direction that i maybe didn't want and i think you know it goes back to this conversation we're, we're having earlier where there's no sense of the integration of the system right from you know um say an individual and their cognition right up to the ecology within which they act and as soon as you see that right as soon as you see that nested um, system you can't uh, get away from the fact that we're being nudged all the time right and, and always have been and that this is nothing new in a sense um, <clears throat> yeah that's yeah that's yeah when, when you think about it that way I feel like the nudge becomes themselves are kind of succumbing to this you know bias and when, when they say that you know design can produce freedoms they they uh, don't understand that whatever is status quo at the moment is definitely reducing freedoms for many people right. so for example yeah. you know cities cities are dominated currently by automobiles by cars that reduces a lot of freedoms of you right, know, right. little little merchants and and cyclists and little kids who'd like to play in and outside so what do you mean that a nudge can't reduce freedoms in that respect? It's, it's kind of baffling to me. It doesn't really respect the ecology, the ecology of, you know, cognition and behavior. Right. And I, I think too often, you know, some of the pushback comes in the context of, um, uh, you know, I should be allowed to consume whatever I want, right? You know, like we've rearranged this kind of supermarket uh you know, a checkout station such that you're more inclined to buy the apples. And, um, you know, it's like you won't tell me what I'm in a position to buy or what I should be buying or, or so on. And I, I think that also speaks to, you know, something about, you know, how, how we think about how we've organized our social life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
and also our kind of philosophy of what we mean by freedom to begin with you know of course yeah. some of our mm -hmm. our freedoms to to you know consume are affecting freedoms of other people in in different parts of the world you know negatively so right right i think that's what i meant to say and you just said it much more clearly <laughs> so um <clears throat> Yeah, you, you, another kind of tread theme, um, you know, motif in your work is, and it's obviously, you know, related, is um, questions around uncertainty and how we manage uncertainty, um, questions to how we adapt to, I guess, emerging uncertainty or the uncertainty of the future. Um, and you identify, you know, two key principles uh, that increase adaptive capacity. Uh, I can't remember quite which paper this was in, but uh, uh, I, I got it. I added it to my notes from somewhere, and uh, one of them was diversification, and one of them was uh, the use of precautionary heuristics. Um, I'm just wondering, can you can you speak about them a little bit, or maybe take one take one at a time, or however you see fit? Yeah. So, yeah, diversification first, perhaps. Um, so this is a part of, yeah, one of my my um, new interest in research is that I'm working with with a group of archaeologists and, and anthropologists and ecologists, and we're working on studying what lessons from the past we can learn uh, for the Anthropocene Anthropocene future. And um, so we're trying to find these, you know, what 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 are the generalizable features of human societies that have made them so adaptive throughout time. Um, I suppose that also has a lot to do with design, you know, these have to be the key design principles that we use to organize societies today. And, and one, one that we find is uh, diversification. So I think if we apply this to current cities and what, what's called the global production ecosystem, which is basically the monolith uh, of industries and, and factories and, and consumers worldwide. And what we notice is that it's it seems like we're losing, you know, cultural diversity, uh, we're losing biological diversity, we're, we're losing cognitive diversity even. And, and meanwhile, uh, most of the history of human past shows that in uncertain times, it pays off to have a variety of adaptive strategies. So to me, like for example, for instance, with, with, with regards to urban design, it means that, you know, we can't just put our, all, all, all of our eggs in the basket that, you know, we expect the economies uh, to grow in the future and, and we can just build these cities or as consumption hubs, but rather we must build cities to have, you know, uh, diverse functions that serve the basic principles or basic needs of what uh, is required to sustain human life, even in times of crisis. So that's, I suppose, the, the kind of key message of diversification. Now, the precautionary stuff actually comes from, from originally from another paper that I worked on, which was research on, on mushroom foragers. So mm -hmm. I did this... Uh, and that's related to the theory of ecological rationality, which basically uh, says that humans often in uncertain situations resort to simple heuristics to manage uncertainty. Mm. So 
when I was reading this literature on ecological rationality, and I was constantly thinking about, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a mushroom forager myself. That's one of my hobbies, and and it's a it's a tradition here in Finland where I'm from. And one of the first lessons we're taught when when foraging is that you know you don't mess with anything uncertain. So you have extreme precaution. You don't pick mushrooms that you don't recognize. You don't pick mushrooms with specific traits, such as white mushrooms and so on. And throughout, you know, centuries or, or millennia of, of mushroom foraging, those are the kind of principles that have emerged through practice. And since then, I've been looking at cultures around the world and, and you find very similar principles all over. And, and even in, in, you know, current environmental policy, people are speaking of the precautionary principle. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's definitely one that's stood the test of time, you know, in uncertain times, uh, prepare, basically prepare for the worst. You can still hope for the best, but as long as you prefer, prepare for the worst, then, then you're safer than, than otherwise. Mm. Yeah, it was one that could have, um, you know, went a long way, uh, at the start of the pandemic, right? And I think it was advocated by a lot of people and most places were, were too slow to pick up on how to best implement it. And and you saw with places like New Zealand, right, where they just shut everything down and, you know, put a hard constraint on the system. And then you at least buy yourself time to figure out how best to respond to the actual challenge that you've been faced with. Yeah, yeah. And these these countries have done better in, you know, most metrics with regards mm-hmm. to health, the economy and, and social cohesion and everything. So... It's it's definitely once again you know it's it's proved itself in practice mm. having having precaution and it's a it's a very old lesson you know from various cultures around the world. Um, that said, I mean I hope you know from COVID we learned to have you know slightly more humility and and, and precaution at the face of uncertainty. But I'm not you know totally convinced. Yeah, maybe you know in certain instances, but. Yeah, there's certainly some some who don't seem to have um, to to bring back t- to the diversification notion just for a second. Um, <clears throat> it's it seems to me right. We can think about this from a kind of nested system scale again and think about um, how this is is kind of operative and think about it almost as. Um, Oh, maybe you can tell me if I if I'm right here. You know, I I obviously acknowledge the the kind of basic insight that diversity in an ecology makes it more robust to perturbation or whatever. Um, <clears throat> but there seems to be an analogy at least there that um, kind of works well, maybe with the whole skin skilled intentional intentionality standpoint. That this is a kind of skill in a way, right? So if I think about it individually. Um, the more ways I can realize a particular end uh, kind of tracks almost one-to-one with my skill level within a particular domain, right? Uh, and being able to skillfully respond to a, a challenge um, is being able to, I guess, manage what comes at you, right? And manage it in a way that you can kind of integrate it into your existing set of capacities and so on. And uh, I think actually that's a nice, you know, kind of, grip on the notion or value of diversity right so there's kind of skillful communities in a way like part of that skill is to build in this 
um, ability to adapt by having all these options available, right? More options gives you more ways of realizing the same end. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that, that's what I think. Like, I think it's a hallmark of a good idea that it works on both, you know, the individual level and the social level and, and the any, any level in between. Right. Um, so, so you know, a, a good football player, you know, is diverse. It, it can adapt to uncertain situations and so on. And a good, you know, jazz musician can adapt to changing sound signals and, and improvise and, and so on. So it is a, I think it is, it's more than just a societal principle. It's a, it's a universal principle of self, uh, self-organizing systems, I think. Okay, so there, there was a, a couple of other notions that seem to align here. Um, and maybe you can speak to them also. Um, so one was polycentricity, um, the idea that decision-making should have many kind of local and context-aware centers and um, subsidiarity, um, you know, the idea that interventions should really be designed close to a, a kind of target audience. Right, and that's that's also one of my big issues with getting back to nudging here is that nudges are kind of, or they seem to be these, you know, uniform tools that come from the top down. And the thing is that often when you look at things from the bottom up or, or at the grassroots level, you notice that, you know, it's it's not really very useful to have uniform top-down principles that, that, that are enforced, basically. So, for, for instance, one thing I've noticed through my research is that the whole, whole idea of, you know, having to nudge people, for example, to behave sustainably is a bit misguided because truly, I mean, most people want to behave more sustainably. So I don't think nudging is this, you know, covert operation of nudging is the right tool for this. I mean, we, we have to empower people and help them build their communities and design their communities uh, from the from bottom up, you know, fit them with their affordances that they feel could be useful for to help them behave in, in more sustainable ways and, and so on. So <laughs> it's, it's pretty funny because once in a while, even I get a email from some kind of government official and they have this idea of nudging you know, people to behave somehow. And I'm like, why, why do you insist on this nudge, <laughs> nudge framework? Why don't you just help people, you know, realize what's in their interest? Right, right. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, some attempt to, I don't know, avoid coming across as too pushy, right? But yeah. you, you just come across a little bit creepy and, you know, uh, not all that kind of uh, sensitive actually to the, to the needs and wants of somebody. Um, so, so can you maybe delve into the notion of polycentricity a little bit, what that actually means and how it's kind of deployed and. Yeah. So I, I suppose like this word comes to my research from either Michael Polanyi's work or Eleanor Ostrom's work, but the idea is that, uh, systems can have many centers and still operate and self-organize efficiently. So not everything has to be enforced from, you know, a centralized authority top down, but you can have local communities with their own uh, hierarchical structures and they can operate laterally with each other and create, you know, wished for outcomes as well. So basically it means that uh, whatever decision-making units you have, are 
quite closely tied to what is happening at the level of practice, you know, what is happening at actually with experts involved with practical matters. So to me, it's, it's, I mean, at the heart of it, it's just the more efficient way of organizing the information flow structure of a governance process, you know, you have more units that are, that are, have more kind of sensory nodes collecting information where it's relevant and then providing services at those levels of course it's it's like it's a, it's always a difficult conversation to have because you have to have some top-down principles you know legal frameworks and such that guide these polycentric frameworks but mm. there is a way to navigate this complexity i think mm. um, is your hope there that we're at a point you know at this point that we have, say, technological platforms and abilities that would facilitate that? Or do you just think it's a matter of, you know, like we could do it even in a kind of analog context, right? It's not the tech as such that opens up these possibilities. It's just making the right decisions. Yeah, I think, I mean, Technology can help, I suppose, with, with this kind of social organization, but it, it's really, you have to have a robust analog uh, kind of base to build upon. Because, I mean, in my line of work in sustainable science, we're already kind of contemplating about what the world could look like in a, in a real real crisis. I mean, I mean, of course, much of the world already, already is dealing with that crisis, but in the Western world, I think COVID was the kind of alarm that set off uh, and said, you know, maybe the future won't be as rosy as we'd always hoped for. And, and that's kind of sparked this idea, at least to me, is that this whole idea of a you know, high technological smart city that is very dependent on uh, uh, what is a very fragile global uh, supply chain that's already been disrupted by, by COVID mm. maybe isn't the most resilient uh, way to organize a, a city. So basically what I think is that we, even if it's more costly, we must design the basic needs or the institutions that provide the basic needs of humans around these very kind of robust, simple, and as non-technological as possible components. Now, on top of that, of course, you can use whatever you want. I mean, but, but I think the, I'm not very hopeful with regards the, the the vision of the smart city, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my 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 um, you know, I had a question for later on was um, <laughs> what your hopes were for kind of a you know whether or not you were kind of techno optimist or not. But um, you know what I'm gathering here is that clearly not. But you know, as you say, a kind of overlaying of the the possibilities and affordances that come with certain technologies, but um, the kind of the real ecology of the matter has to be more integrated human connections, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Social cohesion, I think, is one of the major components. And when I've been studying, you know, past uh, human crisis, I think that's the one thing that keeps on popping up is we need social cohesion at the kind of meso level. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I mean, I'm not a techno pessimist. I'm I'm just not a huge techno optimist. I, I still I, I'm I, th- I think I'm quite optimistic about you know technology in the future, 
but it's just that we can't put all our eggs in that basket. We have to have something to fall upon if the technological framework somehow doesn't prove itself to be as robust as we'd hope. Mm. And that that um, subsidiarity piece, I guess that is is trying to get at something that you kind of mentioned um, briefly was the idea that um, you know we 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 in some way act as local sensors, right? And if we can feed that information, um, you know, back into some some sort of a integrated communal situation where it can be acted upon sensibly. Um, you do have these kind of a, you know, robust systems, right? The the kind of diversity is there, the polycentricity is there. Um, <clears throat> I, I I wonder because um, I know, say, someone like Arturo Escobar has this notion of autonomia, um, which you know it works, starts, I guess, with some of the work by De Paolo and and. Or not Paolo, but um, Maturana and Varela and so on, autopoiesis and self-producing systems and all that. And um, you know, basically, basically wants to say something like uh, people need to practice, you know, the design of themselves uh, at at different scales, um, and also that you know, generally, communities um, can provide solutions to their own problems, and they are actually best suited to do that um, as long as they're facilitated or themselves capable of you know really realizing what the problems are um yeah do you see do you see design playing a role in that do you know of instances in which that is actually taking place you know what some people call the small islands of coherence right that are hopefully at some point you know reaching some sort of critical mass is there anything like that happening in in helsinki or in finland in general or holland um, you mean like small communities kind of trying to design their way out of uh, this mess? Or I mean, so, you know, we talk about this kind of uh, scaling up of this ecology of kind of convivial communal situations where people are doing the thing well. Um, I guess I'm wondering if there are existing smaller models that have some sort of maybe you know, maybe the particulars can't be exported or reproduced, but there's something about the way in which they're organized or, um, you know, working together that is, uh, you know, indicative of the kind of thing that we're hoping for in a way. Yeah, I mean, I think at least where I'm from, what I'm noticing is is in, in many kind of small towns in finland we're noticing like surprisingly uh, efficient self-governance regarding sustainability so there's a couple of like very small towns maybe five to ten ten thousand population that have basically reset their whole energy infrastructure around re renewables at this point and they're way ahead i think some of them might even be close to being carbon negative very soon so it does seem that the most efficient change currently is happening in small cities and, and, and small municipalities with lots of autonomy around organizing their own basic principles. Because like I said before, I think the consensus is, at least here where I live in Finland, is most people want to live you know, sustainably. They want green energy. They want sustainable lifestyles. But we're trapped in this uh, kind of path dependency of requiring absurd amounts of 
of GDP increase per year and so on to justify, you know, the re-election of, of politicians and so on. Uh, so I think there are lots of models to learn from at this point, lots of so-called ego communities, for example. That said, whether or not these scale to the level of a major metropolis, I think is a different question. Mm. And perhaps something I'm, I'm uh, maybe less optimistic about. Mm just mainly because of the way that cities are currently structured as almost purely as, you know, growth and consumption hubs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that is promising, right? Just to hear that that kind of thing is, is happening at some scale, um, whether or not it can scale up is going to be interesting. Right. Um, one thing you, you wrote, um, I think it was in one of the popular articles you had. I think maybe it was actually a response to a question, but uh, you wrote, I think in terms of policy, what I'm doing is quite applicable in urban urban design. What I'm trying to show is that if we make sustainable behavior, sustainable behavior easy and lucrative, this can lead to long-lasting and, self and self-reinforcing effects on the emergence of sustainable cultures. Um, and I... Yeah, I guess I'm wondering again, kind of just going back into the examples you give, is the kind of a what's meant by the lucrative part there, right? Is is it the idea that there's a possibility that um, new forms of economies will emerge and they can be just as lucrative, or are we talking about a kind of enriching of one's life um, more generally? Right. So I think you know throughout human history. Uh, there are instances where humans have shown that, you know, the ways in which they design their material environments can have very long-term effects. So one of my, one of the examples I, I read about in one of my popular science articles is the uh, case of Roman highways, which were basically originally designed for military purposes to transport armies from a place A to place B. But sooner or later, they noticed that, well, you know, we can use these for... Uh, for the transport of goods and trade so you know along these basically these these highways uh, new trade hubs emerged which transformed its cities and when you look at you know the map of europe today you'll still notice that so many of of these major cities in central europe are basically located uh, right by these historical roman roads now kind of applying this to the modern day uh, i think you know by restructuring our cities to promote more socially sustainable and socially cohesive behaviors and, and less environmentally harmful behaviors, we can trigger something similar. So that's what's called basically, a, I suppose, like a nonlinear shift or tipping point in human behaviors, which is something I've been studying for quite a while and also uh, developed computational models around. And usually it, it goes something like this. So you have a a landscape or a field of affordances, so action opportunities in the environment that promote certain kinds of behaviors. Now, once people interact with these affordances, they start developing habits. And when they start forming new kinds of behaviors, these behaviors uh, are transmitted through social networks. So basically social learned. When you see someone behaving in some way, you might copy them or, or be influenced by them otherwise. And, and so on until you, know, you see new habits forming uh, quite even quite rapidly sometimes and, and then these new habits 
basically means that there's more demand for for this kind of infrastructure or more incentives to develop it. So you have this uh, crazy feedback loop. Now, what we showed in this one paper is that at least on a theoretical level, something like this probably happened in Amsterdam and Copenhagen when they started designing more cycling infrastructure. So they, they triggered this kind of self-reinforcing feedback loop that transformed the cities radically. If you look at pictures from Amsterdam and Copenhagen in the 1960s, they're still full of traffic and cars and everything. And when you visit them today, it's like a joyful, I mean, almost like bicycling utopia where everyone's, I don't know, like very liberated and, and happy and free and they have lots of public space to operate in. So that's basically why I remain quite optimistic with, with regards to the power of how urban design can change our future. Mm. Yeah, awesome. Um, <clears throat> okay, I think, you know, we can start maybe bringing it to a close. Um, but I do have, uh, you know, being a, being a philosopher, I guess this is, uh, you know, my... my um, <laughs> my dessert question, if you will, after, after the dinner that we just shared. Um, so one kind of contention in philosophy and the history of ideas generally is that, um, well, first of all, that ideas matter, right? And obviously they do. But um, one kind of point of intersection that, say, the philosophers and the ecologists um, often share uh is kind of tracing our present situation um, back to, say, what Alfred North Whitehead would call the bifurcation of nature, uh, what we might call the kind of Cartesian split or however you want to think about it. The idea that at some point um, human beings separated themselves from nature, right? I think therefore I am, and you stand in some sort of a distant relationship from nature. Um and then some people will say, well, you know, following from that, uh, once the world had been kind of mechanized, uh, we were able to kind of distill it into its uh, constituent parts as, you know, separable atoms that can be um, measured and that we can kind of manipulate. Uh, and that whole, you know, I suppose, relationship to the broader ecologies we inhabit then kind of was imbued through this frame. And first of all, I guess I'm wondering if you think that's true, um, that that we can really locate, um, you know, the, the, the kind of uh, the woes that we presently face at that point. And, th and then I'm also interested in <laughs> to what extent well, there's three questions here, I guess. So one is whether or not you think that's true and how true it is. <laughs> the second one is um, whether um, you think that holds at a kind of individual level, right? The idea that if we see ourselves as, um, you know, world-independent beings constructing models in our heads, and representing a world that exists quite apart from us and that all we can ever access is some sort of, uh, you know, something like what Anil Seth would call a controlled hallucination, whether or not that's a problem. Um, and then I guess the third question is, if it is a problem, what's the alternative? <laughs> 
So, I mean, take those any way you want, but. Right. Um, right. So let's try. Um, I, yeah, I mean, certainly when you study cultures around the world, I mean, they won't, you won't find a culture that in practice and, and in, and philosophy is basically saying that, you know, everything is, you know, just one and, and humans are exactly as nature are. You might, you might find cultures on a spectrum that some say, you know, we're more connected to nature than others, certainly. Um, but I do still feel like there has been a shift, you know, ever since at least the industrial revolution in, in the way that we uh, perceive our connection to nature. And it, it basically has to do with how we perceive that nature can be quantified or, or turned into commodities and so on for our benefit. Um, that said, I'm not sure if it's a question of, you know, change in values or philosophies, or is it just the way that our uh, basic our, our, our production systems or industries are organized? So ever since uh, the Industrial Revolution, you've, not, you've seen uh, basic production moving further and further away from practical professionals and consumers. So today you can totally insulate yourself from, you know, primary production. You can, you can basically not see how your food is produced. You can choose to do that. Uh, very few opt to, you know, actually see how their food is produced for, for, I don't know, cognitive and moral <laughs> comfort, I suppose. Um, but I do feel like maybe, maybe at the end of the day, it's, it's just more of a question of how society and, and production has been organized than a shift in philosophies or values as such. Because if you study Westerners today, especially in, in you know, I suppose like <laughs> hipster circles and in, in cities, you'll, most people will, will be totally like pro-environmental and have these very nice environmental attitudes and so on and connection to nature, but still they might live very unsustainable lifestyles. So that's a, it's a problem called the attitude action gap or value action gap is that our, our behaviors are perhaps guided less by uh, philosophies or values than we often assume. However, um, I still think that we do need more alternative mental frameworks to navigate the future. So we definitely, on the cognitive and intellectual and uh, emotional level, we do have to feel that we're a part of, you know, the nature that we're consuming because that's just a, it's just a fact of nature. And if we disregard that, we're, we're bound to kind of undermine our own existence. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's very... So so I guess, you know, what's coming to me when, when you have your reflections there <clears throat> is just how obviously true it is that, you know, this these uh, kind of modes of production and so on, um, technological evolutions, uh, you know, the, the kind of emergence of, of industry and so on was uh, really is where the, the blame lays. But then, you know, the people who maybe escape in their soul from, you know, the, the path dependencies that are laid out by those cultures, um, are typically like armed with some set of ideas, right? 
and those ideas are about the relationship generally, or at least part of them, is about the relationship between human beings and nature, right, writ large, of the planet. And then if we take that back to the kind of idea that you uh, mentioned quite quite a bit earlier, where you were talking about how, <clears throat> you know, uh, clusters of um, small groups are often the real kind of catalysts of change, right? Like, or, you know, you could, Greta Thunberg, right? It was like, she changed first, right? And it was her persistence and her consistency um, that actually drew other people's attention and was so inspiring. Um, and she was certainly armed with a set of ideas, right? It was like the science, you know, that's what she kind of... Uh, uses her kind of rallying cry and, you know, the thing that was motivating her, right? I just can't ex ignore these ideas that I've been confronted with. Um, so I'm, I'm definitely hopeful there that, you know, that there will be born out of these ideas, um, you know, s s kind of paths towards change or something of that nature. Yes, most definitely. So that's the, it's just, it, it shows how complex social systems and humans are, you know, on the aggregate, you could say that, you know, by studying populations, you could say that, uh, well, basically a study we're working on currently, and, and what we're finding is that, you know, carbon footprints and environmental attitudes have very little change in how societies turn out. But still, you know, it, the, the aggregate level isn't, isn't the whole picture, because you can have an inspiring individual or a cluster of people who are driven by ideals, by values, and they can have an immense change in how societies turn out. So, as usual, it's very, very complex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My my own feeling is like the the kind of yeah, thinking about that itself as a kind of nexus of leverage is an interesting challenge. <clears throat> you know, what does it mean to to bring together? people who have the kinds of cares and concerns at points of high leverage, right? We can get these people together. We can get these people together with an awareness of where to intervene <clears throat> and how best to do it. You know, almost like, um, I'm sure you're familiar with like effective altruism, um, the idea that, uh, you know, certain charities um, <clears throat> are, you know, thousands of percent more effective than most others and you know if you intervene here you can do the most good kind of thing you know something like a comparable like if we intervene on this issue in this way this is a point of real leverage how can we kind of gather enough people together around this to do that yeah the thing is that you know, I mean, consciously i think it's very hard to find those because much of it is probably just happenstance and, and luck you know i think looking at, at history, I, I feel like one of the, if you look at, for example, uh, Greta Thunberg, she, there, I mean, she's a, just amazing, but, but still, I mean, there have been many, many others who have been probably as amazing and, and they haven't succeeded in doing this. So maybe, you know, just every, every, all the environmental conditions were right at that point to launch this, mm. this, um, this uh, beautiful movement. Mm. So I think with regards to design, I think it's it might just be more impactful to create boundary conditions that are as enabling as possible for social movements to arise 
than trying to empower, you know, specific people or, or, or units. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, my feeling is, right, let's try both, right? Sure, sure, sure. I mean, yeah, but yeah, of course, let's do everything we can. I get. I, I certainly get your point. I, I think um, it's a bit. So there's a saying in Japan here. It's like success has fallen down seven times and getting up eight. And uh, I recently, I recently noticed this um, under the lockdown. I started smoking cigarettes again, which I hadn't done for like ten years. And um, <clears throat> I, I, I tried giving them up a few times and couldn't. And I thought if I just keep trying to give it up. So sometimes it's it's just going to happen, right? And after trying maybe five or six times, um, it just happened. It was easy. I just said, okay, the, the one thing I, I, I can't do is lose hope and stop trying to give it up because something is changing in the background, right? Um, <clears throat> so with that in mind, this sense of like, uh, we just keep trying, right? Just keep trying and situations like Greta then just kind of emerge. Yeah, and it's a result of you know decades of hard work. <laughs> so we yeah. have to keep on keep on doing that. Right, right, right. Interest. Yeah, exactly. So even in the case of my smoking the cigarettes, I had read a, a book previously some years ago about addiction, and the idea was um, <clears throat> most ha- a lot of addicts say struggle in their efforts to give stuff up because they develop a fear of hope. And that fear of hope um, leads to uh, a lack of trust in yourself and, and then an unwillingness to go through hoping. Um, <clears throat> and in a way, it's a lesson for us, I think, right? Not to be fearful of, of, of the hope. Um, I think that's a, a nice uh, point to maybe wind down. So maybe, um, yes, do you just just uh for people listening do you um have contact details or something like that if you'd like them to get in touch or are you open to people getting in touch or sure sure so i am on twitter uh, by my own name robert Aronen. can you spell that for people just people are listening yeah it's a it's not the easiest name i'm sorry that's r-o-o-p-e is my first name and second name is K-A-A-R-O-N-E-N. And I also have a website uh, by the name, first name, last name.com. Yeah, that's probably it. You'll find my contact details on on both of those. Cool. Is there anything else you'd like to say, Rupe? Oh, this was a, this was a nice and long, long conversation. I think we, we um, touched upon every, every every possible topic, which is great. And uh, yeah, just thank you so much for having me and looking forward to discussing with you, with you again. Yeah, absolutely. It'd be great to get you back on sometime in the future. Um, <clears throat> okay, so thank you, Rupi. We'll see you again soon. Thank you.